You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 278, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Anand Dillon is responsible for technical development strategy at Cover as the CTO and co-founder. Prior to Cover, he was the CTO of the fashion app Stylekick. Anand is a full-stack developer and software engineer proficient in Ruby, Java, Python, C++, JavaScript, and Ruby on Rails. He holds a Bachelor of Applied Science from the University of Toronto, where he graduated with high distinction. He's also a Y Combinator fellow and alumnus. Thanks for joining me today, Anand. Uh, Thrilled to be here. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. Yep, we're happy to have you. And of course, we would love to hear your developer origin story. Yeah, so as a kid, I was super into video games and just, I guess, computers in general. Um, So when I was, I think, nine or 10, uh, my dad bought me a new hard drive and RAM, and I learned how to upgrade my own computer. Um, When I was 13 or so, I think I got Sam's Teach Yourself HTML in 24 hours from the library. Um, That was my first real programming-ish experience. Um, And then in my last year of high school, I took a computer programming course where I learned Java. I think I built a battleship uh, game for that. And I eventually went on to take engineering in university where we learned a bit of C, C++, assembly and whatnot. And most of my real learning uh, has come on the job uh, in kind of the startup world. I'm exactly the same way. So I went through a boot camp, but I have to agree with you that most of my most of my development career has been on the job training for sure. So what is your experience with Ruby on Rails? So my first experience with Ruby was in about 2012. We were using it as part of the back end for my previous startup Stylekick. Um, at that point, I think I learned it from the original uh, Michael Hartle tutorial book. I think like a lot of engineers have uh, used that to learn Ruby. Um, and since then, I've built probably eight or nine apps using Ruby on Rails. That's awesome. Well, you mentioned it. So before diving into cover, I'd love to hear the technical story behind Stylekit. Yeah, so originally what we were building was a body scanner to help people find clothes that fit online. Um, So the original product was uh, using the Xbox Kinect sensors. So we used an array of three of them to do a full body scan of a person's uh, kind of silhouette. Um, I think that was written in C and C++. Uh, We ended up pivoting to kind of a mobile app, uh, originally built using Parse as a backend service and eventually migrating to Ruby on Rails. Over time, um, we had to build additional features like search, uh, real-time activity feed and whatnot. So it ended up growing to a polyglot microservice architecture. So we had some services in C++, some services uh, using Node, but the primarily the primary technology that we were using was Ruby. Um, and since then, Mo- Ruby is usually the first language I go to when I have a programming task to work with. Well, as the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. <laughs> so I would love to hear about Cover's mission and the technical stack. Yeah, so what we're trying to do is make financial products really easy uh, for customers to use and also make it so the pricing is transparent. What we've uh, used in terms of the technology stack, um, we have two mobile apps. 
uh, our Android app is written using Kotlin, our iOS app is written using Swift. Most of our backend uses Ruby on Rails uh, with a couple services in uh, Node, uh, as well as a service in Golang. Was it um, tricky to come up with the infrastructure that you were going to start with, or did you know as you came up with the idea for Cover that this is the way you were going to approach it? So it's something that kind of evolved over time. So originally we were working with a monolith using a, one single Ruby on Rails app, but with uh, the insurance domain being so complex, we had to break it up into subdomains related to the uh, individual business processes that go on insurance. So things related to uh, generating a quote, binding a policy, generating policy documents. Um, eventually the uh, technol technology, Eventually, the technology ended up supporting uh, the business processes um, and wherever we found needs for performance uh, improvements, we then kind of modified the technology to suit the business case. That makes sense. So I happen to know that you did most of the development work on cover before growing out the team. How was the process of slowly letting new teammates take over the development work? So it, for me, it was a very gradual process. Uh, for the first one and a half years of the company, myself and one of my co-founders did essentially all the coding. Uh, so that meant iOS, Android, uh, Ruby, all of the other backend stuff. Uh, first thing I eventually gave away was the Android app when we hired a great Android developer. Um, since then, we've grown to about 25 or 26 developers in the team. Um, so it's gone from me writing the majority of the code to the point now where the majority of the code that's been written has been done so by other developers. Um, so that it was a learning process for me because I originally I was very hands-on and micromanaging. Now I'm a bit more hands-off and focus more on the high-level architecture. Excellent. So you mentioned that you're a little more hands-off. So yeah. how involved are you in the day-to-day -day coding? Are you looking at the code at all? Are you doing any pull request reviews or is that entirely managed by your development team? Yeah, so I do a bit of pull request review, uh, probably about three to four a week. At this point, most of my coding work is involved with prototyping new components to kind of like test things out. This could be trying out a different architecture, experimenting, with the skeleton of a new feature or trying out a new refactoring. Um, I also do open office hours uh, for my engineers three times a week, where often I'll pair program with one of the engineers on a challenging part of the code base. Overall, I probably spend about 10 hours at work in the code a week um, and probably another five to 10 outside of work. Um, so I still enjoy doing code for my personal interests. I like to learn a new language each year. So Last year it was Elixir, this year I'm focusing on Haskell. Um, and I kind of have a very systematic approach to learning a new language. Um, I like to, first of all, just go over the basic syntax. I like to look over what's available in the standard library. What are some of the best practices and anti-patterns for that specific community? Uh, how do they do testing? How do they do dependency management? And how do they do deployment? So that's kind of what I do for kind of a year, a year and a half at a time on one language. That's really interesting. So you've really been diving into a lot of functional languages. I, I like that you started with Elixir since it is fairly close to Ruby and then you're just kind of going out from there. Is there a pattern as to which languages you choose? Yeah, so I like to 
focus on a family of languages at a time. Um, so for a while, I would say five or six years ago, I focused a lot on um, JVM languages uh, just to figure out how they would interop. Uh, lately, for the last three years, I've been mostly focused on functional languages, um, and I'm currently kind of just looking at uh, language to learn next. Wow. Okay. Well, you mentioned that you have the open office hours and you hear a lot of engineering uh, managers really stress that you need to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with their, your developers, but that's really cool that you have basically slots where people can come in and pair a program with you. So what is the engineering culture at Cover like? Uh, so our engineering culture is very learning heavy and learning focused. Um, for example, each of our engineers gets a thousand dollar a year learning budget. They can put that towards, you know, conferences, books, courses, et cetera. Um, we talk about, we talked a bit about the open office hours for uh, engineers. Um, and we also have a weekly uh, engineering uh, meeting where we ev everyone gets to view someone demo a new interesting technology. Um, and we also have a tech uh, book club where essentially we'll go through one or two books over the course of three or four months in a topic that a large group of the engineers are interested in. That sounds really fun and a really a great encouragement in order to finish those tech books. I definitely picked up tech books before and didn't have any uh, push to really finish them through. And so it's usually been on me to get that done, but I like the idea of doing a team read. Yeah, especially when you, especially when you know, like in a week's time, you'll be discussing these two chapters. It kind of provides that motivation. Awesome. Well, I definitely want to dive more into Cover's tech stack, but we're going to take a quick word from our sponsor. A good font is one of the best ways to make your project stand apart. At typography.com, you'll find the work of Heffler & Co., creators of stylish and high-performance typefaces. Their fonts are used by organizations like NPR, cultural institutions like the Guggenheim Museum, and by the people we love, like the office of Barack and Michelle Obama. And now you can use their fonts, too. H&Co's well-curated library and one-stop licensing options make choosing the right fonts simple so that you can spend less time looking for fonts and more time using them. H&Co's been designing typefaces for over 30 years and knows how to help designers avoid the pitfalls of using a less-than-perfect font. At typography.com, you'll find lots of options, all of them good. Every font filled me is built to the same high standard and is designed to have everything you need and nothing you don't. You'll find fonts that have well-thought-out families with great language support and even the most obscure characters, plus tons of tips, tricks, and inspiration to help you get the most out of type. Whether you're designing a website, an app, or an entire identity, H&Co makes it easy to choose the perfect typeface from their library of over 1,500 fonts, including classics like Gotham and Knockout and new favorites like Isotope and Operator. The Ruby on Rails' own logo uses their Whitney and Archer fonts. You can try the whole Heffler & Co. font library right in the browser at typography.com. And now for a limited time, as a Ruby on Rails listener, you'll receive 10% off your next purchase from H&Co. Use code Ruby for your discount at checkout. Thank you, Heffler & Co. for sponsoring the show. Back to you. What has been your approach in designing covers Ruby on Rails infrastructure to handle scale, since that's often a big topic in our community? Yeah, so originally we just started out by building a typical resource, resourceful card app. Um, for a lot of applications, that's pretty much all you need. They're only at a certain level of business complexity or a certain level of um, traffic do you really need to uh, move to anything more complicated. 
so for our scaling issues, they're primarily related to the complexity of the domain itself. Um, so insurance itself can be very co complicated, very convoluted. Um, for example, for our auto insurance rate filing uh, in the state of Texas, I believe the filing was on the order of about 12,000 pages. Uh, so all those pages eventually made it made their way into the code in some way or another. Uh, so ultimately, how we ended up uh, dividing up all the complexity in the app was using uh, domain-driven design in the context of Ruby on Rails. Uh, so that largely means identifying what are the large business functions within the organization. So um, for insurance, that's stuff like uh, generating a quote, uh, binding a policy, generating policy documents, uh, handling claims and whatnot. So all of these uh, subdomains become their own essential mini app within, within our larger infrastructure. That also gives us the ability to um, handle the performance issues on a case-by-case -case basis. So some parts of the system primarily interface with a mobile app. Um, for most mobile apps, the biggest bottleneck is going to be the latency of the network. So in those cases, you're not really worried too much about how fast the underlying backend service is. Um, in other cases uh, where performance is important, for example, generating uh, quotes relatively quickly, we can tune those individual services on a case-by-case -case basis. That tuning can come in the form of um, adjusting the code, adding caching, and perhaps even switching to a language uh, which is uh, inherently faster. So by breaking up the entire um, complex domain into its own subdomains, we get the opportunity to tackle each problem individually. I like that because, you know, each part of the app might have a situation that you need to account for and you don't want to make a technical decision based on another part of the app that that all makes a lot of sense and domain driven design is really smart. Now, are there any particular parts of the app where performance is incredibly important and how did you approach it? Yeah, so the part that's most important for us is our rating engine. So our rating engine is essentially uh, a single endpoint which takes all the actuarial tables from our um, insurance filing, um, uses it to uh, spit out a final price around what, sh what someone should pay for their auto insurance. So the ma major challenge there is we've integrated with some third-party APIs uh, for quoting, and some of those can take as long as uh, 10 to 15 seconds uh, to return an auto insurance quote. Um, that's something that's definitely not acceptable for us. We want to make sure all of our users have a great experience. So what we've been able to do is actually get our uh, pricing engine down to about four or five milliseconds to return a price. Um, and that's while reading in, I believe it's 127 different tables uh, that are used for the calculation. Um, so how we actually ended up doing that is the, the code is still all Rails, although at this point, I think the only part of Rails that we use is Action Pack. And we ended up replacing all of our active record tables uh, with marshaled uh, Ruby files. So essentially, we took all our existing database tables converted it into an in-memory hash where the keys were structs that had the, uh, 
that had the lookups and the values were also structs, which had the values that uh, we needed for our calculation, marshaled those into binary files. And as a result of that, we were able to make our rating engine, I think, 20 to 25 times faster than it originally was. Now, off the top of your head, are there any crucial libraries that you used in order to make this happen? Or did Cover pretty much have to roll their own code in order for this to be implemented? So, so, so for this, we were actually lucky. Most of the functionality that we needed for this was built into the Ruby standard library, um, which made things a lot easier. The, the hardest part of the entire, um, I guess, uh, optimization was figuring out how to reduce the uh, memory footprint footprint. So initially we load we marshaled all of the active record objects, but active record objects are typically fairly memory heavy. Um, so we occasionally uh, in our test servers we would get out of memory errors. Uh, by converting those active record objects to plain old Ruby structs, it reduced the, it reduced the memory overhead significantly um, and we were able to do, um, most of the work with just plain old Ruby. In the pre-show prep, I heard you're looking into event-driven architecture. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, so the event-driven architecture um, came about as essentially a response to the callback hell that can happen a lot in a lot of active record models. Uh, with the complexity of the insurance domain, that gets scaled up even further. Um, so let, let's take an example. Let's say you bind an insurance policy. What are some of the things that need to happen um, as part of that process? Well, first we need to queue up all the payments associated with it, uh, handle field payments if they occur. Uh, we need to generate uh, all the policy documents, uh, insurance identification cards, et cetera. We wanna queue up a welcome email uh, to the customer that includes all their doc documents. Uh, we also need to notify the Department of Insurance that a policy was bound. Um, and then we have some internal things that we want to do at the same time. We want to post a Slack message to a specific channel related to the sale. Um, and we also want to update our sales analytics dashboard all at once. Um, imagine implementing that as a you know active record callback. That would be an absolute nightmare to test and work with. Um, so a lot of this has come about as a function of our adventures in domain-driven design. So for these given subdomains, when anything of uh, interest to other subdomains occurs, uh, we generate a event. Um, we use Kafka as our um, infrastructure layer. And then whatever's interested in that event, say for example, the policy bound event can just hook up to that particular topic. Um, and then all the listeners can handle their own individual responsibilities. So for example, uh, we have a document generation uh, service, which can read that event and produce the appropriate uh, PDFs that we need. So this makes it a lot easier for developers to work independently. They only need to know what events they're interested in. Um, the challenge uh, then becomes how do you do tracing? How do you do um, logging of the entire a system just because everything's happening asynchronously. So that's kind of the trade-off that you make. You get a bit more performance, uh, you make it easier to launch new um, features, but you also kind of like pay the price for debugging and tracing and whatnot.
Interesting. How far are you into this process? Yeah, so this is some something we've started relatively recently, probably about a quarter or so ago. Um, originally, we built um, app uh, in a monolithic fashion. Uh, we started converting some parts, some features of the app into Rails engines. So still within the same code base, but, uh, but uh, creating a logical boundary between the main app and the individual engines. Uh, we then moved from um, you know, direct syn synchronous calls to um, pushing events to the event bus all within the same app. And we've, we've started to shard off microservices where, ne where need be. That's a really smart way to do it. So I definitely want to talk about how you're using machine learning with Cover. First off, for our listeners who might not be familiar, what is your definition of machine learning? Yeah, I look at uh, machine learning as answering the question of how do we make algorithms that get better with experience? Um, so I use the term experience very loosely. Uh, the experience could primarily be your training data set, a combination of data and some reinforcement learning or um, some other specialized algorithm. So it's so how do we make an algorithm that evolves over time? So I definitely want to dive into how you're using machine learning at Cover, but we're going to take a quick break for our second sponsor of the show. Are you ready to put your Rails experience to use in a job that you love? Indeed Prime is a confidential free service that puts you in front of leading brands and tech startups with roles that you're interested in. They find out what's important to you and match you with your dream job. All it takes is one free application to connect to thousands of companies in over 90 cities. Companies like Twilio, Overstock, Sling, WP Engine, PayPal, and VRBO. Skip endless resumes and get matched to employers based on your skills, experience, and your salary goals. You even get access to one-on-one -on -one technical career coaching that includes resume reviews, mock interviews, and salary negotiation tips. So whether you're hiring or looking, meet your match on Indeed Prime. Join now by going to indeedprime.com slash rubyonrails. Thank you to Indeed Prime for sponsoring the show. So as I noted, I'd love to hear how you're using machine learning at Cover. Yeah, so currently we're primarily using machine learning for object recognition and images. Uh, currently there's two primary use cases. So first is let's say you're getting a home or renter's policy but you want to document everything that you own, that's a value. So in the case that you have to make a claim uh, with your insurance provider, you have proof that I owned you know, this TV, this other piece of um, electronics, this piece of art at X, Y, and Z date. So what we've built out is a smart camera, which allows you to take a video throughout your home and automatically tag items that we would consider high value. So that could be things like appliances, electronics, art, whatnot. And then those are saved on our servers. So in the case, you know, hopefully down, this doesn't happen, but down the road, if you needed to make a claim, you would have a video with all the items um, tagged so that you, the insurance provider has proof and processes your claim faster. So that's the first use case. Uh, the second use case is related to auto insurance. Uh, so part of the binding process uh, for some carriers is we uh, need you to take a photo of your car in its current state just to make sure that there's not or existing damage. 
So what we're using uh, that for is um, in the mobile app itself, as people try to take a picture of the vehicle that they're trying to insure, we can mark it as a vehicle or not a vehicle, kind of like, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, hot dog, not hot dog, uh, to, to make sure that, um, you know, you're taking a legitimate picture so that there's not a lot of back and forth between you and um, uh, the insurance agent. Eventually, we'd like to get it to the point where we can actually identify what's the make, uh, make and model based on the picture itself. Um, the last case, which we're currently just in the experimental phases of, is using someone's uh, driving behavior itself to kind of adjust someone's quote up or down. So essentially, in this case, what we would do um, is have a person drive with the uh, app open um, so it can track their driving behavior, whether or not you know, they're speeding up very quickly, whether they're doing erratic turning and whatnot, and use that to feed into our rating algorithm algorithm so we can adjust people's prices up or down uh, based on their actual driving behavior. Wow. That, those all sound really complicated and probably very tricky to test, but should you get them right, I mean, would make a huge impact in the insurance industry. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity for innovation um, and also a lot of opportunity for making the customer's uh, user experience much more convenient and uh, much easier. Awesome. So um, as you noted at the top of the episode, you usually reach for Ruby when you have a new project or something to solve. Um, while you aren't necessarily writing code day to day, do you feel that you make a lot of effort in keeping up with the community, especially innovations in Ruby and Rails themselves? Yeah, so I'm fairly active um, in the community itself. Uh, I like to attend RailsConf whenever possible. Um, I do a fair bit of uh, code reviews with the rest of my engineers. And I also listen to um, a lot of the tech talks that happen. Um, most of the conference videos are available on YouTube. So it's especially when you get into more um, I guess, niche areas of the community, like how do you apply domain-driven design to Rails? What are the different approaches to testing? Um, those things um, I like to spend probably on the order of like two to three hours a week on just to stay um, abreast in the community. And a lot of the more high-level principles can be applied not just to your Ruby work. Um, it can be applied to other languages as well. I completely agree. I use podcasts a lot in order to keep me um, plugged into the industry. So thank you listeners for listening to this podcast. I hope it helps you. But um, I also agree that uh, companies like Comp Freaks put out all these amazing conference talks. So if you don't have the accessibility to be able to reach to these conferences, make sure that you take the time to really listen to those talks because there's a lot of amazing ideas and innovations that are coming out often. So um, how can we keep up with you and cover? Yeah, so if you're interested in the learning more about insurance itself, the best place to look at is our blog. So it's cover.com slash blog. Uh, we're also on uh, Twitter and Facebook. Our handle is cover. And we're actively hiring for engineers in both our Toronto and San Francisco offices. So if it's uh, something you're interested in, you can find our open positions at cover.com slash careers. Awesome. We'll definitely link all of that up in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Listeners, we'll be back with another host catch-up episode next week. Thank you so much for having me.